So, hello and welcome to Ken Griffey's Grotesquely Swollen John. The podcast following my journey as I aim to learn all about baseball, one MLB team at a time. Now, joining me today, direct from Cleveland, we have Anthony Castrovince. Anthony, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me and, and thanks for getting uh, the talking softball song from the Simpsons episode in my head uh, from, from the podcast title. <laughs> no, that's well, what we aim to do here. So when as we edit it, we add in adding clips of the clips of the of the song in the in, in the opening. So it's always good. As I said, it's my one of my early introductions in, into baseball was was yeah. was that song. And that's the, the initial nine baseball players I knew were that Springfield power plant team. So it's good to. <laughs> get to know more and more players and and faces and names from from the sport um so anthony you are here to talk to me all about your beloved cleveland guardians so how long have you been following following the team uh my whole life um you know my my introduction to baseball was through the cleveland franchise uh at their old municipal stadium on the lake uh in cleveland and you know i grew up in this area and um so, I, you know, first games I went to and uh, first players I fell in love with, they were very bad teams uh, when I was growing up in the 1980s, uh, but that didn't make me love them any any less. Uh, at the time, Corey Schneider uh, was my, my favorite player. He was a guy who uh, basically hit a home run or struck out, uh, mostly struck out. Uh, that was pretty much, uh, I, I thought he was the greatest thing in the world. Um, and I remember he came to my hometown, Euclid, Ohio. He came and uh, put on a little clinic at the uh, at the high school baseball field. So that only makes me like him all the more. So just grew up around the team and uh, and followed him ever since. So was that a a common uh, outreach thing? So that was in the in in the off season. He was doing a or the team were doing a high school tour. Or how did that come about? I don't. I I have I have no idea. I was probably like eight or nine years old and. Um, I just remember they invited some little leaguers like myself out to watch him. And uh, he probably, frankly, uh, wasn't someone we should learn from because he was a big swinger. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, he just put on like a home run derby, basically. And uh, it was really cool to watch up close. Definitely sounds like a, an ideal experience for, yeah, for baseball man, baseball <laughs> well, man, Anthony in, in, in Ohio. Um, so yeah. would you say you had like the, the typical baseball childhood? You, you were playing Little League, you were listening to the to the Indians as they were then on, on the radio and going to the ballpark as you, as you could. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was very easy ticket back then. Uh, you know, you show up the day of the game and sit pretty much anywhere you want. And, uh, you know, my, as I mentioned, Corey Snyder was my favorite player. He played right field. So we sat in the typically sat in the right field, uh, general admission section, uh, out there in the outfield. Um, I do remember there was one game, uh, at that ballpark where, there was a sizable crowd. It was, uh, the Indians were playing the Rangers. Nolan Ryan was pitching and he wasn't known as Albert Bell yet. He was still Joey Bell at the time, but he okay. made his major league debut. And, uh, my dad and my brother and I went down for that. So that that's a very firm memory for me. One of my first baseball memories was going to that game and, and the stadium was, you know, pretty well packed for that era, you know, and uh yeah joey bell got a base hit off nolan ryan for his first hit so that was pretty cool it's definitely a, a famous moment to to have ticked off um <laughs> so you you had that had experience being able to get get those right field tickets with with your family if it was, wasn't always always a sellout at that time <laughs> uh, so how, how did that um transpire into your your career so you then got into yeah. baseball writing at a college or, or still in high school 
Yeah, so I just, I love sports in general. Baseball was my number one sport as a kid. As I got a little older, high school, college age, you know, I, I watched a lot of basketball and football as well, and I was open to covering anything. Uh, I definitely knew I wanted to be in sports writing. Um, and uh, it just so happened that um, a gentleman who was the Cleveland Indians beat reporter at the time for MLB.com, which was a pretty new venture at the time Mm -hmm. mlb.com was only a couple years old when i was a senior in college and their uh cleveland writer came down to my school i went to ohio university he was a visiting professor in the off season and that just lined up perfectly where um i got to know him he kind of became a mentor to me and um that opened the door to me uh interning uh you know uh with mlb.com after college and pretty much been here ever since worked for a couple newspapers in between and and while waiting for a full-time job and, but, um, but, but pretty much been here, you know, for, for the last 20 years, which is pretty cool. So, so yeah. Um, so 20 years ago at MLB.com, how did the, the operation work? So you would cover the oh, team yeah. on the road as well with a, with a dial up laptop or how, how did it work having <laughs> a team in 2004? Oh, yeah. It's funny to think how much things have changed. We used uh, America Online Instant Messenger, which is a very uh, nascent uh, messaging program. We use that to communicate with each other. And um, yeah, dial up internet, um, old clunky, you know, brick laptop. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see screenshots of what our website looked like at that time. I'm sure it looked pretty primitive uh, compared to now. Um, you know, MLB.com, though, to its credit, got, uh, it's foot in the door on the uh, video side very early and was really a pioneer um, in, in the video technology we've grown accustomed to now where with live sports, you know, streaming and whatnot, they were at the forefront of that. Um, so it's always been a, it's always been a great forward thinking company to work for, which is funny because people always thought of baseball as kind of stodgy and traditional and whatnot, but it was yeah. the, the, as an industry, as an, as a league, it was very forward thinking and establishing MLB.com and, and you know having it where the team sites all you know you know you know where to find things you know you go from one team site to the next you know where everything is and it's a really cool product and it's it's been fun to be a part of it for like i said 20 years and to see it from almost the beginning to what we've become now uh, a real juggernaut in the industry but was there a particular person that the mlb commissioner's office who was driving this early early adoption of a great digital platform yeah, well, there was, uh, you know, Bud Selig was the commissioner at the time. You give him a lot of credit, you know, because uh, yeah, he he pushed the game forward in a lot of ways when you think about expanded playoffs with the wild card and interleague play and all that. And those things had their critics, but nobody could deny that they, they've been good for the growth mm-hmm. of baseball. And, um, you know, dot com was, was part of that. And there was some good leadership at that time that that was, uh, again, very innovative. And um, a lot has changed since then, uh, including leadership. But um, but it, again, it's we're always we're always trying to serve the fans best and, and finding the way that is. And that changes over time. You know, people's tastes and, and way they consume content has changed a lot. When I was covering uh, the Indians, I covered the Indians as a beat writer uh, from 2006 to 2000 to 2010. And um, at that time, you know, we were, we were writing longer pieces. We were writing you know game story every night, a long game story every <laughs> night. Um, I was doing blog entries that were thousands of words. And we've learned that sometimes less is more. And, and sometimes the way people consume game content in particular is a lot 
uh, different. So, um, you know, now we have these tap stories, you know, so if you want to know what happened in the game, you, you just kind of tap through it. It shows you all the key plays mm-hmm. and the game story has kind of gone out the window. It's become more about what is, what is the story of the day? What are people talking about today, as opposed to a rundown of, you know, play by play. And then here's how they scored in the fifth inning and that sort of thing. So, um, so it's really evolved a lot, how people consume that. So by the, the game story, so you mean you said rather than a play-by-play analysis, it's the game story might be a certain um, batter has got a on a great hitting streak, or it might be yeah, um, right. It's more about the yeah. narrative of the series some, as a whole. Some kind of trend story, yeah. Some kind of uh, you know, this is what's going on in the team at this time. Sometimes they make a major transaction, and that that's the story of the day. You know, they make a major trade or something, but. Um, but yeah, the, the blow by blow of, of, of how runs scored on I mean, people, people watch the game or they just mm-hmm. generally know what happened. They're not interested in rehashing it. And that, that's sports writing in general is a big change, you know, from from what sports writing used to be, um, where it used to be very geared towards uh, game stories. And I, I think we've learned to be smarter with our coverage. So when you were covering covering Cleveland as as the beat writer, um, how did that work? Were you still able to be the fan or were you? Purely, you had your work hat on the entire time. uh, I do have to say, you know, I mentioned Corey Snyder earlier. And when they traded Corey Snyder, it broke my young heart as a uh, 10-year-old at the time. And I kind of swore off the Indians at that time as a fan. Uh, And Corey Snyder was traded to the White Sox, so I briefly became a White Sox fan. And then he went elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I, yeah, I I guess (laughs) that taught me very early – that I, I don't have the fan mindset, I guess, of, of you know, uh, and maybe that was a good thing and a bad thing where uh, I don't live and die with the results. It allowed me to, from a very early age, to kind of take an objective view of baseball, which has mm-hmm. worked out really well in my career. Um, on the downside, the Indians went on to get tremendously, they were, you know, one of the best teams of the 1990s, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. But I just didn't enjoy it as a fan, living and dying with the results. I just kind of was able to enjoy it as a baseball fan. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I missed, uh, you know, wearing all my paraphernalia uh, for all the, the 1990s glory days, you know. But um, so I always had that weird relationship uh, with fandom, um, which I, I, you know, you look back now and it makes sense because I, I think it just speaks to kind of me as a person. I, I, I just prefer to be a fan of the game and, and uh, to take a 30,000 foot view of things. As, the, as opposed to, you know, living and dying with every result. Um, when I covered the team, that allowed me to, to write objectively and um, passionately because I am very passionate about the franchise. And I'm probably more of a fan now than I was as a kid just because I'm seeing it through my kids' eyes, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and I'm, not as a, as a, you know, I'm not a beat writer anymore, so I'm able to just kind of enjoy things. But when I was a beat writer, I, I could clearly say I was not a fan. I was just... I was just passionate about telling the story of the team and telling it well. And I didn't care if they won or lost. I just, I wanted to, to relay to my audience, what is going on with this club? What do you need to know? What are the interesting stories? Let's get to know these people as individuals. That's what I was passionate about as opposed to caring where they finished in the standings. Now, when they're really good, that's, that's more fun, you know, as, as a writer, so they went on a run in 2007 when I was a beat writer. They went to the American League Championship Series against the Red Sox. Turned out to be this this incredible seven game series, um, and that was as much fun as I had on on that beat because it, it was you you start to root for the people more than the mm-hmm. the logo. You're just you get to know the people inside the team, and uh, 
you know, you just want good things to happen for them. So, so that was fun. Did you think that coming at least from Cleveland, did that help at all when you're getting to know the players? Is there any sort of Cleveland dialect or Cleveland traditions that helped you getting away in with, with the organization or, or, or the coaching staff? Well, it's interesting because, you know, those people generally don't come from, you know, wherever they're playing that, you know, they're not from Cleveland. Now there are people like behind the scenes, certainly. Yep. Um, but, you know, you're kind of like the chamber of commerce in, in some senses, you know, you could, you can point them a, a new guy, you can point them to a restaurant or whatever, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think where it helped me most being a Clevelander, being a native Clevelander is just having a real sense of the history. Um, mm-hmm. And you just, you know, you just, it would have been different if I had been, I think there was a, a time where I thought I was going to go cover the Minnesota twins. Um, okay. And I did, I covered the Cincinnati Reds was my first beat. And Cincinnati was a, you know, a team I knew quite a bit about growing up in Ohio, but I, initially I think I was supposed to cover the twins and then something happened, but um, you know, that would have been a, a, a more, I would have done the job well, but mm-hmm. the, the, not the, the historical knowledge and just general insight of the mindset of the fans wouldn't have been there. I would have had to learn that over time, you know? Um, but that's what you, that's, that's what you do in journalism. You tend to have to become an instant expert on things you didn't know about previously. Yeah. Uh, but it did help for me uh, to have grown up here and, and to really have a relationship with the team and, um, and, and to know, you know, to know the ins and outs. As you mentioned the 2007 championship series, I guess that's um, yeah. a more, obvious highlight almost because it is uh, successful results on the field but were, were, were there any other sort of stories or, or highlights from from your time or on the beat maybe a particular player who's maybe unheralded who you you took a, a, a shine to or uh-huh. any other yeah. more less obvious tales from that time yeah well I was really fortunate because um you know the and they still to this day this front office they they really bring in you know, high character people for the most mm-hmm. part. And, and you get that in general in baseball. I, I think the personnel you deal with in baseball is, is really, you know, you meet some great people and I covered a lot of great people, you know, good players, not so good players. They're really good people was the consistent yeah. <laughs> uh, theme. But um, like, I think of guys like, uh, you know, I saw, I got to see CC Sabathia at a really nascent stage of his career mm-hmm. when he was just figuring out how to be, you know, the Cy Young winner he became and, and the Hall of Famer he will be very soon. Um, so that's really, that was a real highlight for me. Um, and I think about people like Casey Blake and Jake Westbrook. I mean, these are not necessarily household names, but they were really great mm-hmm. people. My fa- I think my favorite player I covered, <clears throat> excuse me, on a daily basis was Shin Soo Chu. Uh, okay. you know, he's from South Korea. He, um, he just, you think about, all the things you want an athlete to represent and be like how much he cared about the game, sometimes too much. He put so much pressure on himself because, you know, he was a big deal in South Korea mm-hmm. uh, coming over to the United States. And, and so I think he put a lot of pressure on himself to be perfect, but you know, he was, he was a really good player for a, a pretty good stretch there. And he was just a really great person to deal with on a daily basis. He had a lot of great insights about the game. And I just, I always appreciated how much he loved the game and, and wanted to perform well. Uh, particularly for for people back home. Yeah, so this is that's off off the the, the direct Cleveland topic, but I've not really covered much in the podcast so far. International players to the MLB. Yeah. So uh, in terms of the general, the the thirty thousand foot view, as you called it earlier, how are 
international players are they i guess they're enriching the league um or are they, are they do they generally take too much adaptation time what's the general opinion on on non-american yeah. or non-canadian players no that's that's a great um that's a great question and great it's it's an important topic because the game has become so international um you know players from the dominican venezuela you know Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, but yeah. obviously it's kind of its own thing. And, um, and yeah, Japan, Korea, I mean, you see the, the greatest baseball player maybe ever is from Japan, yeah. Shohei Otani. Um, and for me, I, yeah, I, I'm just speaking from my experience, like what an amazing experience I had at formative years in my life to interact with all these people, yeah. you know, and, and to learn about their cultures and, you know, it, it really broadens your perspective and, and horizons and, and empathy and all those things. Um, and you see guys come from apps. So, you know, Cleveland's big star right now is Jose Ramirez. Yeah. You know, he's from the Dominican Republic. He comes from nothing, you know, and, and he's <clears throat> he's pretty typical story of a, a, a player coming from the Dominican and where he grew up really, you know, modest, <laughs> to put it yeah. lightly. I mean, you should see the field where this guy grew up playing. It's it's rocks in the infield, and it's just, you know, poorly kept and all that. And, and, lo, and hold, lo and behold, he becomes a superstar. You know, he comes mm-hmm. to the United States, and then these guys come here, and they, they don't speak English. And, um, you know, they, they're they so raw. They have this raw talent. Uh, so many of them are signed at 16 years old. Uh, by 18 years old, they're not signed anymore from their native yeah. country because mm-hmm. they're considered washed up for some reason. But mm-hmm. um, they come here at 16 and they have to adapt and learn and, and, and grow into the players they become. So I have so much respect for them and, and that process. Oh, no, it's going to be an interesting topic for, for a future episode just talking about the, yeah. the foreign legion of, of Major League Baseball. Because, again, <laughs> one of my initial interest points um as we said was was the simpsons and the uh, mlb and baseball is this all american game but that certainly is it's not the case it'll be really be interesting for for a future episode to talk more about the foreign legion so that's a topic of interest yeah. and, and you're listening today get in touch and uh you can, you can tell me all about the the, the the foreign players in the mlb um so Anthony, back to to cleveland then um so the team name also changed in yeah. in recent years was that the correct decision it had to happen or what was sort of the thought process apart from that the indians name had become outdated yeah i think it had to happen so yeah as i said i grew up here we had the chief wahoo logo and the indians name and 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 those are near and dear symbols to me Mm -hmm. um and and all clevelanders you know it's just something you grow up with and it's not it's not meant you know meant to be offensive and we don't Mm -hmm you know, so many people don't look at it as offensive, but then you grow up and you look around. And as I said, you, you gain more perspective, you, you get more empathy for people in different situations than you are. And you can see, I mean, you start with a logo. I mean, the logo is very, it was very yeah. clearly a, a not flattering characterization of, of Native Americans. So that had to go. And, and that took, frankly, way too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was so, again, it's, it, you, you have a relationship with it as as a young fan but then you grow up and realize how, how offensive it is yeah as for the name that was a little more complex because it's a big deal you know it's a major undertaking for a uh, you know a, for any business to to rebrand itself mm-hmm. like that let alone one that's been around for over a hundred years and, and people have such sentimental attachment to the name but it was such an awkward name i mean it was when you just take one step back and you look around and go what right 
do I mean, first of all, it's not even the correct term for yeah. Native American. Mm -hmm. And what right do you have, uh, you know, to to brand yourself that, especially in, in the modern day? And it gets really awkward from a logo perspective. When they got rid of Chief Wahoo, they very quickly learned that there's no real alternative that can go with this nickname that's mm -hmm. not, you know, incorporating uh, Native American symbols and, and things that are important to them. So, mm -hmm you know, what do you do with that as a brand? You know, you just have a C logo for Cleveland and that's pretty boring. So, um, so they're running all these issues and, and, you know, there was obviously, um, this became a, a much broader conversation in 2020, you know, mm -hmm. um, and to their credit, you know, they, they got, it, it took that major sea change and, and major yep. discussion, but, you know, to their credit, they didn't waste time once that, once that did become the discussion, you know, and okay. they said, okay, we're going to rebrand. So, um, so I, I, I totally embrace it. Now I, I was advocating for Cleveland spiders, uh, which is the okay. long ago, uh, national <laughs> league franchise in Cleveland. And I thought it'd be cool to bring back that name, but you know, I, I totally understand why they went with guardians. It's a, you know, it's, it's just swapping out the first few letters of the name and <laughs> from Indians to guardians and, uh, it was probably easier for them from in terms of colors and, and logo perspective. It, you know, the, the script writing is pretty similar. Um, and I think people have, have gotten used to the name pretty quickly, as I suspected. You know, it was, you get a lot of pushback, at, as you mm -hmm. might think. And um, But I think all it took was one winning season <laughs> with that <laughs> name. And all of a sudden, they're the Guardians. I don't, I don't hear people nearly as much accidentally calling the Indians as I did a year ago. So apart from yeah, the accidental slip of the name, what what else has has had to change so in the in in the ballpark or the or, or the chants have all been all been updated or they mainly focused on the Cleveland rather than the the second part of the name anyway. The, what are they seeing in the ballpark? Yeah, I mean the thing is they they weren't able to do much with the name to begin with, so you know not much has changed in the ballpark experience. You know the biggest change in the ballpark experience is the loss of John Adams, who was their number one fan, you know, banging his drum in the bleachers. Mm -hmm. He passed away recently, sadly. Um, so he, his, his drum is now replicated on the scoreboard uh, as opposed to a live person banging the drum. But mm -hmm. other than that, I, I wouldn't say it's changed at all. You know, um, people called them the tribe. Uh, that was their informal nickname before. And now people call them the guards. Um, and again, you did hear a lot of slip ups last season, mm -hmm. even, you know, team broadcasters would slip up quite a bit and you're still going to get that here and there, but it, it tapers off. I, I said, when they changed the name, I said, my, my estimate was five to seven years yeah, <laughs> before it all feels mm -hmm. pretty normal. I mean, to me, it already feels normal because I'm in baseball and I, you know, I, I, I write the word guardians now all the time, but I, yep. I think for the average fan, five to seven years, I think about my kids, you know, my oldest was seven uh, when they changed the name. And, you know, by the time she's, 13, 14, she probably won't even remember they were the Indians. You know, that that's just how it's going to be. You mentioned the ballpark experience being largely the same. So how are you currently consuming baseball? So you mentioned you were a beat, beat writer until 2010. So now you cover yeah. the game nationally. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I've been a national reporter for MLB.com, uh, you know, since I came off uh, the Cleveland Indians beat. And um I just consume it in all ways, uh, all day, every day. You know, um, you got, you know, uh, we have MLB.TV allows you to mm -hmm. go anywhere, you know, and that's, that's, that's a great tool. Um, and I, I still go to games here quite a bit. Um, it's still a great place for me to do work because uh, you get the teams that come in. 
Um, Cleveland usually is fairly relevant. You know, they've been pretty good um, for the most part. Uh, they've been one of the more successful American League franchises over, you know, especially, you know, since Terry Francona came aboard, uh, what, uh, over a decade now. So, um, and then the teams that, that come in, Cleveland's a great place for me to work because there's, you know, it's not the national, it's not the huge throng of media that you would have in a New York or, uh, uh, you know, Los Angeles, et cetera. So, so I still enjoy that. Yeah, that's that's home for me. You know, that ballpark, uh, mm-hmm. so many great. Yeah, I, I, I came of age there as a writer and um, I met my wife there. She worked for the team at the mm-hmm. time. Um, that's how we met. So you know, now I have special memories of bringing our kids there. Um, so it's just a really special building to me. Yes, it's always been always been been part of you. Um, so it's good to hear that again. Back back to the nostalgic side of baseball, which yeah. for me is from pop culture but for you you've definitely lived it let's so say living your whole, whole whole life in in the ballparks in in cleveland um but what has i suppose changed um or maybe you might tell me it hasn't changed is the is the same metrics and the analytical side of the game because of course your book uh fans get guide to baseball analytics so uh, came out a couple of years ago uh, so is that side of the game been something that's has always interested you since the days of Corey Schneider coming to your, your school or is that a, a new interest for you and the, and the baseball fan in general no it's it's new for me I think it's new for the baseball fan in general and um that's what's you know that's another element of of growth for me as a person within baseball that baseball uh, opened my eyes to where you know I was I was a good student uh back in grade school and high school but math and science were easily my least favorite subjects. Just, they did not do it for me at all. And I would just take in information, pass a test, and then move on with my life and not retain anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I got into baseball to write, you know, to to be a writer, to tell stories and uh, get to know people. And I still do all those things. But what I learned uh, covering the sport over time was that the old statistics that we would just trot out uh, were not doing a good job of telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you could throw in a player's batting average or home run count or RBI total or, you know, win total for pitchers, but it just wasn't telling the story properly because it wasn't giving the proper context. And, you know, I, I was growing as a writer the same time that these stats were becoming more prominent. And it's been a mm-hmm. fascinating thing to watch how they've really overtaken the game, the way it's, uh, the way teams are constructed, the way games are managed, all these things. And so I wrote this book from the perspective of for the people like myself who just weren't inclined um, to to be interested in, in analytics and, and to teach them, OK, here's why uh, batting average doesn't do its job. Here's why uh, weighted runs created plus does this job. And, and as clunky as that term might be and all these terms might be here's why they they are actually pretty easily understandable um i i I didn't see anything out there that was really explaining these things in a in a clear and fun way you know like nobody was making it fun it was kind of you know you'd read it and your eyes would gloss over so i tried to write something that was just fun and easy to embrace and easy to understand um and you know because I do think it's important to, to understand these numbers because they're, they're what's driving baseball today. It was interesting too, because just the other day, uh, Blake Snell, uh, mm-hmm. you know, great pitcher for the San Diego Padres. He was, he was mic'd up during a game, doing an interview in the dugout. And uh, he just said to the announcers, 
because he saw something on the scoreboard. He said, hey, what is WRC plus? And the mm-hmm. announcers didn't know. Uh, yeah. That's weighted runs created plus. And uh, so it was, it was just this this moment where I'm screaming at the TV, like, go get yeah. my book, like, because <laughs> it's in there, you know, because um, it is it is wonky. But it's once you understand it, you'll never look at baseball the same because you'll understand how to compare players within their era you'll be able to understand how to compare players from different eras Mm -hmm. um which i think is important when we talk about the hall of fame it's not enough to say a guy hit 500 home runs what does that mean 500 home runs in babe ruth's time is much different than 500 home Mm -hmm. runs in the steroid era you know so Mm -hmm. that context matters and that's why you know stats like that that adjust for context are so important so where are these stats coming from so you mentioned the one that the 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 player and the reporter both didn't know so how uh (laughs) So it's all com- uh, calculated or automated, like um, are the chips in the ball and chips in the bat type thing? Or? Oh, no, it's it's not automated. Well, I mean, it's automated on the, on the computer, on the like, like fan graphs, baseball reference. These are the two most prominent uh, stat mm-hmm. uh, resources. So fangraphs.com and baseballreference.com. Uh, and, and they have their inputs for how these things are calculated. So, you know, every day that games are happening, they're getting the data and spitting it back out. And so like weighted runs created plus, instead of just like, you know, you got a hit three times in 10 at bats, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's measuring the value of what you do offensively in, in total, Uh, you know, your production at the plate, your production on the base pass, scoring runs, et cetera. And and then it's it's taking that relative to the rest of the league. So if you're in an era, you know, I mentioned the, the, the 1990s or mm-hmm. you know, a huge, huge home run, huge run production era. So having a 30 home run season in 1998 doesn't mean as much as having a 30 home run season in, say, 2014 uh, yeah. when, you know, home run production was was pretty suppressed. Um and having a low ERA in the year of the pitcher in 1968 is much different than having a low ERA like Pedro Martinez in the height of the steroid yeah. era, I think is, is as good as we'll ever see because his numbers, when you look at them, they're, they're great on their surface. But when you see these adjusted stats like ERA plus, it's like, wow. I mean, he was, he might've had the greatest pitching seasons of all time because he was in this era where, you know, teams are routinely scoring six runs a game yep. and, and he's holding him to one, you know? So that's just kind of what those stats do. So in the rule changes for, for, for this season, have you already noticed tr- trends or can the, these new, new, new analytics you've, you've been looking at, can we expect to see, see trends quite quickly after, after a season or two of the new rules? Well, I think we can trust um, a lot of the things we're seeing only because we have so much data from the minor leagues. And so we mm-hmm. have, you know, like 8,000 games of of minor league experimentation to say, okay, yeah, this is real. Um, So right away, I mean, the game times are are shortened. Um, So you're seeing, you're seeing more action in in less time, which is good for the product. And uh, yeah, I I think the shift is the one that's, that's Mm -hmm. not totally clear. I mean, it'll it'll probably take a longer period of time to have a really sense of that, but we are seeing, you know, left-handed hitters do have a higher batting average than they, than they did last year. So that's, that was, you know, one intent of, of these new rules. But I think the main thing is just the the pitch timer, just moving things along. Um, and we are seeing more action on the base pass. I think that's the one that can really uh, 
you know, take time to to really show the full value of, of what they've done this year. I think you have certain teams like Cleveland, mm-hmm. um, you know, Baltimore is another one, Pittsburgh's another one where they're taking advantage of these new rules and they're 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 being more aggressive on the base paths, but not every team is set up to do that. But I think over time you'll see teams groom players, you know, more with the stolen base mindset that kind of went away from the game for a long time. So it'll take time for them to develop in that way. But I, I think there's there's more incentive to do that now. Oh, true. So in, in regards to your your writing and your output for, for MLB.com, are you now the analytics guy um, in your, your, your <laughs> no. pieces in the last couple of years? No, no, no. I'm the I'm the guy who uh, I'm still the storyteller yeah. who will weave in uh, the, the analytics. But we have people much smarter than me. <laughs> Mike Petriello would, would probably be on the writing side, would probably be our, our number one in terms of the analytics. Mm-hmm. And I, I recommend people follow him if they're really interested in that element of the game because he he turns out some fascinating stuff that just make you smarter um and we've got a great team of of just uh researchers and mm-hmm. uh you know every year we're, we're putting out new uh data points that are just you know just making the game more interesting and, and um you think about uh catchers are, are probably the most difficult thing to evaluate statistically but we've come up with some ways to to look at them a little deeper um so no, there, there's there's a lot of great great stuff and that's at mlb.com we're trying to appeal to everybody you know i mean mm-hmm. if you go to i mentioned fan graphs earlier they have written content it's very geared towards statistically inclined yeah. people whereas at mlb.com we're going to have that but we're also going to have you know the average joe casual fan <laughs> mm-hmm. and and give them what they want as well um and then i my my role is has become very storytelling oriented and you know, deeper features and, and television features and, and things of that nature. Um, and then just some fun stuff, you know, just as the season goes along, um, you know, lists and, and stuff like that. So, um, but there's, there's a lot, every given day, it's amazing how much, how much content you can generate from baseball because there's so much going on every day. There's, there's 15 games and there's so many stories within those games, the people and the teams um, and, and just league trends as well. So you're obviously kind enough to be speaking to me on this Thursday Thursday afternoon. So how does your your, your weekend look like? Do you t- typically tend to watch multiple games, focus on just one, or um, how's, how's your, your your work for on the weekend? Yeah, usually multiple games. Um, I've become really addicted to just turning on. Uh, most nights, uh, MLB TV has what's called big inning, and mm-hmm. it'll just take you all around the league. And uh, okay. it'll take you to the key moments in, mm-hmm. in the key games. So that that's a great way to 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 just check in on, on a bunch of teams at once. That's great for me and my role. Um, but sometimes I will lock in on a, on a certain game. I mean, the other night we had uh, um, a pitcher for the Mariners, Bryce Miller, making his debut, um, mm-hmm. and, and that was fun to watch. And um, a lot of times, you know, my my wife or my kids, they want the Guardians game on, so we'll put the Guardians game on, yeah. on one screen or and maybe on my <clears throat> on my tablet I'll have I'll have something else going on. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that's generally how it works. And um, but yeah, the best thing on the weekends is baseball is just kind of on all weekend. You know, yep. you got the night games Friday and there's usually a few day games on Saturday. So you can kind of just have it on all day. Um, and this early part of the season, it's good to just see as much as you can um, because you don't know where this is going. I mean, there's there's already major surprises. The Pittsburgh Pirates were not expected to be very good and mm-hmm. they've been terrific. So um, so it's it'll always humble you baseball always keep you humble in your opinions because very quickly they're rendered useless and uh this early part of the season is is 
a good observational period as opposed to uh, putting any opinions out there because they can look pretty dumb within 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess this is luckily uh, only a once or twice a week podcast. We are I was speaking to people <laughs> who are doing daily, daily podcasts where you're right yeah. each, each week almost. They're completely the opposite from what they've previously been been talking about. Um, so Anthony, you've been uh, very, very kind and very, very generous of with, with your time so far. So just um, before we go, just wanted to ask you. So if I if I take a trip to to the US and I if I include Cleveland on the tour, which I certainly hope to. Uh, so first of all, what am I eating in the city? And then second of all, more relevant to you, apart from your book, what else am I reading on the plane over? What what else are the, the must reads in baseball at the moment? Oh man. Uh... So I, I I'm a big Joe Posnanski fan. I think he's the best, uh, the you know one of the best baseball writers there is, and he's got mm-hmm. a great book called The Baseball 100. That okay. for anybody who's um, whether you've been a fan for your whole life or like yourself just getting into baseball, mm-hmm. that's a great. It's so well written. Um, profiles of he he picked out the top 100 players of all time, which is okay. a very controversial thing to do. You know, yeah. <laughs> nobody's ever going to agree with that list. Um, and he orders them in actually a really fun way. It's not, it's not really a strict ranking. Like he, he ties players to a certain number for a reason. Um, but it's, it's a great read, uh, to mm-hmm. really, uh, get, get the history of the game and, and the, some of the you know best players to ever play it. So that's a great place to start. Um, and that, that might take your whole flight cause it's a, it's a thick one. So, yeah. um, when you get to Cleveland, uh, you know, obviously you'd want to go to a game at progressive field. You'd mm-hmm. want to check out the rock and roll hall of fame. Uh, that's a really you know, cool museum. Uh, food wise, Cleveland is a very underrated food town. We've got a great chef scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Simon is uh, one of our. Uh, yeah, he he went big. Uh, he, he was a chef here locally who who went national and on TV, and he spawned this whole generation of of, of people that he influenced. And so, uh, you know, you can check out his his restaurants. But just in general, uh, you know, Cleveland is. Uh, know kielbasa and 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 things of that nature we don't we don't have like a signature dish we mm-hmm. it's a very uh uh there's there's so many uh ethnicities uh w- within cleveland so we don't have like oh you got to eat this except at the ballpark it's become a rare thing for anything to truly be signature in one place but cleveland has its own mustard okay and you won't find it in any other ballpark so uh Stadium mustard, Burtman's ballpark mustard, they will have that at Progressive Field, and you'll want to load up your hot dog with that because it's delicious. It's fantastic. Well, good to hear. So, Anthony, um, again, thanks once again for your time. So, our listeners, we can find you on MLB.com. You can find me on MLB.com, correct, and MLB Network. MLB.com and MLB Network, and of course, your book, A Fan's Guide to Baseball Analytics, is certainly in my in my Amazon cart, and I hope it, hope it will be in a few of our listeners' cards too. So, Anthony, thank you very much for your time, and to all, thanks for listening. Thanks so much for having me. You can find the podcast at Swollen Jaw Pod, and please remember to share and review so that other baseball fans can find us. Please get in touch if you have a story, idea, or suggestion about your team that I need to know about, and tune in next week to hear more about my journey into baseball.